would see him. Verse 31 
Paul quotes the explanation of marriage from the book of Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then in 32, he comments, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. In other words, do you understand that God calls husbands and he calls wives to display a picture and to act out the self-sacrifice of Jesus who died for you and me. To display a picture of his loyal love and partnership and honor and oneness and the intimacy, the relationship that's shared between Jesus and his people, the church, which all throughout the Bible is called his bride. As one commentator explains, Paul saw that when God designed the original marriage in Genesis, he already had Christ and his church in mind. This is one of the great purposes of God in marriage to picture the relationship between Christ and his redeemed people forever. Talk about an exalted calling. In fact, we find this comparison all throughout the passage in verse 23 for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body. She's the Savior. Verse 25, husbands love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 29, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they freed and cared for their body just as Christ does the church. In a few minutes, we'll unpack a little bit of what each of those verses mean, but let's pause here. Marriage is a drama, a dramatic reenactment of the sacrificial love. Christ, the God who marries broken people like you and me. Let me offer a few quick implications of this. Number one, if you're someone that's exploring the Christian faith today, do you understand that what you are being invited to explore is not simply a choice of religion, but rather you're being invited to explore a relationship with God that is likened to getting married to God. Have you ever thought of it that way? A second implication is this. Marriage isn't ultimate. Jesus is. Marital love isn't the greatest love. Christ's love is the greatest love. Because everything about marriage was intended to, from the very beginning, to point away from itself and upward and outward to the love of Jesus for us. In fact, we're told that at the end of time, when Jesus returns, when all humanity is gathered before the throne of God, and when those that are in relationship with God are finally and fully perfected, we're told that that event will be like a wedding reception, a great party, a feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb, the consummation and the perfection of God's love for His people and His people's love for Him. Human marriage is not ultimate. It points forward to the ultimate marriage. Mm-hmm. 
And so whether if you're married or if you're single, do you live like that? If you were to see me or sit across from me at IHOP down the street, decided that we were going to enjoy some pancakes, and so we started flipping through that wonderful menu with some nice vivid colors and pictures of pancakes and waffles and omelets and all sorts of things that you can enjoy. I love IHOP, I'm, 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 and I'm hungry. Uh, I'll tell you. But if you were to look up at me and you were to say, well, are we ready to get some food? And you looked up and Noticed that I had already got out my knife and fork, and I'm uh, drooling over the picture of pancakes. It's just so good. I, I, I'm so enthralled by the, the picture that I'm, I'm ready to put the menu in my mouth. And you say, Hold on a second. That's just a picture of the pancakes. Don't you know the real thing is coming? Dear friends, God is bringing you pancakes. But a lot of us are eating the menu. God offers you the deepest, most perfected, glorious kind of love in himself. And you're trying to squeeze and milk your human relationships for what only God can give you. Amen. If you're single today, know that your ultimate spouse is Jesus. Whether you're someone that struggles with a longing for marriage that hasn't been met, to know that your ultimate spouse is Jesus who loves you perfectly like no one ever could. I do not say that To know this and to embrace this starts to just in small ways free us from perhaps wanting it too much in human form. Or frees us perhaps from fearing marriage and running from it too. Your ultimate spouse is Jesus, and that's a message for you, married folk, as well. Uh, because do you understand? That unless you know that he's the only one that can give you what you really want and what you really need, you will tear your spouse up. If you ask your husband or wife to give you perfect love or perfect security or a perfect track record of forgiveness, perfect loyalty, perfect communication, perfect regard for all your needs, which only God can do for you and give to you, which is the good news of His grace. Do you see, when Jesus is in His proper place in your life, then we really start to experience immense freedom and power to be like Jesus in your marriage. God is bringing you pancakes, dear friends. Eat the pancakes. Stop munching on the menu. Marriage is not only drama, however. Marriage, we're told in this passage, is also denying. Not only drama, a dramatic reenactment of the love of Christ. Marriage is the 
deny all itself. You notice verse 22 and everything that follows after it follows only after verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In fact, that whole passage is so closely linked to verse 21, and yet we can't see it in our English translations, but you know in the original ancient text, there's actually no verb in verse 22, so it actually sounds like this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands, as to the Lord, husbands love your wives. You hear that the overarching call and commitment in marriage for husband and wife is to submit to one another. Now in a second, the apostle will unpack the different distinctive ways in which that loving submission shows up in the role of the husband and the role of the wife. But let's start here. Submit to one another. Now that word is not our favorite word, is it? Not to modern mouths and modern ears and modern hearts. But I found Dan Allender, a counselor who wrote a great book called Intimate Allies, book on marriage, to give a helpful definition of what this submission means. Submission is yielding one's individual will and agenda for the good of another. It's giving up my agenda for the benefit of my spouse. It's dying to myself. It's denying my desire to be number one. And it's a mutual submission that we're called to, meaning that we will lay down our lives for our spouse's glory. So that both husband and wife, and not just the wife, are called to sacrifice for the other. To not live for ourselves, but for the other, to put the other person's needs before our own. Which includes ways in which we spend our money or spend our time. Where submitting might mean slowing down enough to really learn about who the person across from you really is. How they communicate. What their passions are. What their fears are. The submitting might mean inviting your spouse to lovingly correct you without getting defensive. It might mean submitting your career, your other friends, even your independence to show to your spouse that they are your new priority in life. Or you might even be submitting your personalities where an extroverted spouse might give their spouse just a little bit more space that they might need. Or the more introverted spouse submitting themselves by saying, okay, I'm going to engage in a few more words, even though this is draining me, ten more minutes of conversation out of love. Supporting them in a task or an endeavor or a dream to give yourself for the good of the other. And if this starts to sound depressing, you've got to understand that what we have in mind here, what the Apostle calls us to, is the other person's glory. That we sacrifice and we give and we serve for the spiritual transformation of the other person. Listen to this, verse 26. Why? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The goal is glory, is radiance. 
as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How do you lead? By loving. And how do you love? By dying. After all, Christ is head of the church and Christ died for her. And this is how it helps for us to understand in verse 22 and verse 24 when we're told that wives are to submit to your husbands, understanding that it's talking about the relationship of the wife to the leadership of the husband, um, empowering her husband to lead and to serve. And I know these words are controversial. I know for a lot of folks and maybe you, Maybe a reaction and a a visceral reaction even against some of these words. And we'll talk about them in our Q&A time in just a second. Because this passage, it's true, has been misused and abused. It's often resulted in the oppression of women, not only in broader society, but in the church and various religious communities. And it just needs to be clear that in Paul's perspective, that that is actually an abuse of this passage. That the Bible again and again clearly affirms the equality of men and women, both created as unique reflections of the image of God, as 1 Peter 1, 3, 1 Peter 3, rather, puts it, that husband and wives are seen as co-heirs of the grace of life. A lot of people dismiss or demonize this Apostle Paul as a sexist bigot, however, forgetting that this is the same guy that penned by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, These words in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul was one of the original ancient feminists. He really was. Where he challenged gender norms of his day and culture because the gospel of Jesus Christ set a new way of relating to people and handling power. There's a different thing that we're called to, and it's headship and leadership as servanthood and sacrifice. And it's submission as an exalted role of empowering another to lead and to live together in partnership. So this leadership, this headship does not mean blind obedience, doesn't mean total subjection to a tyrant. It certainly does not condone violence or a domineering spirit. The husband is not called or allowed to simply make unilateral decisions, nor does this allow for him to make uh, up a, a home in a relationship where he's unwilling to listen, unwilling to delegate, unwilling to involve his wife, but rather... It's leadership where he lays down his life. Building consensus. uh, Loving and sacrificing. uh, Where the husband is uh, certainly creating a place where it's safe to be yourself. Where husband and wife are able to love freely and even lead one another. Because his headship is one where he's taking responsibility for the totality of the marriage 
but together they're working out the details of making life work together. It's important to understand that the apostle doesn't give details to this principle, exactly how to work it out in every last specific. That the husband should do this and the wife does this and this is who should be earning more or less or this is the kind of work they need to be doing in the house, out of the house or those kinds of things. The Bible doesn't say so. It gives us some wisdom that points us in the right direction, but there's lots of freedom to how this headship and submission works itself out. Where the husband is called almost never to overrule his wife and her desires and decisions because it's meant to be a team effort and a collaborative process. Where even when the husband does make a decision, and even when perhaps on rare occasion he might need to sort of break a tie, that he would never do it without the support and agreement of his wife in the end. Uh, Where the vast majority of the time, stalemates are worked out through humble conversation and real engagement. But let me say this, as much as we need to guard ourselves from abuses in that direction of this idea of headship, in my conversations with Christian women, a lot of their concerns actually lie in the opposite direction. A a, a lack of leadership and a lack of engagement on this issue of headship. Not just a usurpation of power or an abuse of power. Which is why the wife, together with the husband, needs to work it out and understand and work through what it looks like to not allow for passivity on either end. And by the way, even violence in a marriage is a form of passivity. Because I would rather yell at you and crush you than have to work things out with you. I don't want to work. I'll just dictate or kill. And here's the dance. Where at times when you look out on the dance floor, you're not always sure who's leading. Because there's mutual submission and sacrifice constantly going. And yet there's someone on the inside, who does take responsibility, who exercises a sense of, at the end of the day, I must give account to God for what happens in this marriage and in this family. And there's the dance of leadership and followership, of initiation and collaboration, and all of this being transformed by a vision of Jesus. See, because none of this can be understood unless it's seen in the light of the drama of Jesus. You see, according to the message, this paraphrase of Philippians 2 sounds like this. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God. Equal status with God. But didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave and became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. If we can open wide our hearts 
to that story, that reality, that message, maybe it starts to transform the way that we relate to power struggles, to love, to words like leadership and submission and headship. In the book, The Meaning of Marriage, Kathy Keller, she talks about her own struggles in the past with this very passage, Ephesians 5. But she too explains how everything changed when she saw it in the light of Jesus. This is what she said. Jesus, the Son of God, submits to the Father's headship with free, voluntary, and joyful eagerness, not out of coercion or inferiority. The Father's headship is acknowledged in reciprocal delight and respect and love. There is no inequality of ability or dignity. So we are differently gendered to reflect this life within the Trinity. Male and female are invited to mirror and reflect the dance of the Trinity. Loving, self-sacrificing authority and loving, courageous submission. And she poses this helpful question. Look, if submission was not an assault on the dignity and divinity, but rather led to the greater glory of the second person of the Godhead, to submit himself and assume the role of a servant, then how could it possibly injure me? Jesus is the ultimate standard example and model, but dear friends, he's also the ultimate power. I mean, don't forget, we can't do this stuff on our own. If it feels impossible, if it rings raw and hard, whether if you yourself today are a husband, if you're a single person that would like to be one day, or truth be told, even just in your normal relationships amongst peers, these principles still do apply in so many different ways, this mutual love. Don't forget that these are spiritual qualities that we grow into over time by the power of the gospel. Wives, don't go home and berate your husbands. Husbands, don't go home and critique your wives. We're not naturally good at loving or submitting or leading. It takes a lifetime of marriage to learn and grow into. So there's grace and compassion and mercy, and that, in fact, is exactly the secret power to being able to do this. Today, I I feel so weak as a husband, so weak to be able to love and serve like this. I do. Maybe you feel the same way. And so it's important even for me, along with you, for me to hear this passage saying to me, to us, you want to love like this, you want to serve like this, you want to sacrifice like this. First, acknowledge that you don't do it. To yourself, to your spouse, to your God. Repentance, right? Humble yourself. And then let Jesus love you like that. Enter yourself into the drama of the gospel and let the ultimate self-sacrificial, self-submitting love of Jesus wash over you and change your heart. He forgives all my failures to love. 
He forgives all my unfaithfulness. He forgives me for all my broken vows, for all my self-centeredness, for all my addiction to getting my way and to coming out on top. At every point that I have failed my wife, Jesus has been the perfect spouse to me. And when that starts to compute with this hard heart, and when that starts to electrify my soul, he begins to do it through me and through you, giving you grace to love, even beyond your human limits and capacities to love and serve and sacrifice. Jesus loving your spouse in you and through you. What a mystery. What a mystery. But may it be so in our relationships, in our church. Let's pray. Jesus, we bring ourselves to you asking for your help, your grace, asking for your mercy, uh, that you would once again fill our hearts with your love, that we might be transformed from the inside out. Uh, How deep the Father's love for us, that he would give his Son And that his son would love us and sacrifice himself for us. Open wide our hearts to this good news that we too might learn to love like you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing. Yeah. Uh-huh.